Hey, everybody, it is Justin Shackle. Welcome you to episode 24 of Toe in the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn, where we break down the art of pitching each and every week on the show. We do it with the five-time World Series champion and the Cy Young Award winner, David Cohn, the master researcher, James Smythe, and myself. Guys, I'm coming at you from the Topps Bunt House in Arizona, where the John Boy Media crew is at this entire week. Spring training has officially sprung. We are in unfamiliar waters here because we're actually going to be able to talk baseball, talk pitching, and talk player and team moves because they've happened after the last week with the CBA being ratified. It is such a good feeling to be able to do this with you guys. Well, yeah, I, it's you. You know, you guys are on a plane flying to Arizona, and the deal gets done. And now we, hey, spring training's here. You guys are in the right spot at the right time, and yeah, we get to talk about what we'd rather talk about anyway. It is pretty sweet. And the way you just phrased that, David, brings the trade that happened on Sunday night between the Yankees and the Twins to the top of mind because I came here for the second half of this trip. I was in flight when the Yankees and Twins made that trade. We're going to get into that in a few moments. Want to let people know we have John Lester on this episode's podcast. He was terrific. And David, I'm, I don't want to speak for James, but I could just tell – Watching his facial expressions during the interview, there was a great chunk of this interview with John Lester where you two were just going back and forth, deep diving on the art of pitching. It was fantastic. Yeah, you know, he's to me, it's it's not only to have a great career, one of the great left-handed pitchers of his generation. Uh, he was in the right place at the right time. Uh, he went through off-the-field adversity as well, and, and going through cancer and, and as a cancer survivor and beat, beat it and is a big part of his life and still is very involved with the uh, pediatric uh, cancer research and fundraising. So yes. Um, you know, when he started out, the information age was just beginning when he was a young pitcher. And then when he left the information age was in full, full bloom. So, you know, he's a perfect guy to, to bookend uh, th this era over the last 15 years with the major changes that have happened in this game. And as we get more and more data, more and more analytics involved, more and more tools to uh, understand what happens on the field, how we evaluate it, how we evaluate talent, how we evaluate performance. He is right in the middle of it and involved through that era. So I find that just, just fascinating to get his opinion on those sorts of topics. Yeah, we're going to touch on more with John Lester in a couple of minutes, but let's begin this show with the opener and talk about that trade. Get your thoughts, David, on the trade that ended the, the Gary Sanchez era in New York. Gary and Gio Urshela traded to the Twins on Sunday night for Isaiah Kiner-Falefa, who spent a hot minute with the Twins organization, as well as Josh Donaldson and one of the catchers for the Twins, Ben Wortvet. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. So I was in the air when that was happening, and the only way I actually found out about it was I was watching MLB Network. They had a replay of MLB Tonight, their studio show, was just on loop, and in the bottom left corner, they had a small little graphics giving the bare minimum, the bare bones of the trade, and I had so many things pop into my head. I was wondering at first glance what was happening in your head when you saw that trade. Well, it, it's, there's two ways to break it down. The emotional side, you know, you, you get emotionally connected to these players, especially a guy like Gary Sanchez, who came up with such a bang when he first broke in. I mean, he looked like a world beater, like a Hall of Famer. 
like a hall of famer would look when they, when they break into the league, uh, it's, it's hard not to have the feels, you know, on the emotional side, if you're a Yankee fan and the ups and the downs, uh, the Gary Sanchez was a lightning rod on both sides of the, both sides of the issue on whether, whether or not the Yankees should stay with them or not. Finally, it ends, uh, it ends in an unexpected fashion. And, you know, the thing that, that rings true to me is that there's such a dearth of catching talent out there that the Yankees probably felt like they had a chance to get a young catching prospect back. And if you look at the Yankees uh, organization in the minor leagues, they have some catching prospects, but they're more known for their bat. And it's not, we're not sure if Austin Wells is going to be a big league catcher yet or not. We know his bat is a big league bat, but we're not sure defensively if, if he's going to stick back there or not. I mean, it's still a little bit of uncertainty with that. So, you know, if the Yankees felt like they were going to move on from Gary Sanchez anyway after next year when he was a free agent and you had a chance to get a young catcher back that's a, a really good defender, a good defensive catcher, then maybe they felt like they had to do that because they didn't have somebody in the minor leagues waiting to come up and there's not a lot out there on the, on, on the market to be had. So catching is really thin. So that's part of the equation. And then obviously um, you need a shortstop and uh, you know, Isaiah Kiner Falefa, he's a, an incredible athlete. I don't know if anybody, you know, if you've seen him play very much, but he's a fantastic athletic player with great speed. He moves so well an outstanding defender. Uh, he really is going to help on that side of the ball. And that tells you what the Yankees were thinking there as well, that with two really great shortstops out there to be had in free agency in Correa or story, they chose not to. And that shows you what they think about their prospects coming up, whether it's Anthony Volpe, who we've had on this show and we're all very, we're very impressed with, or, or uh, some of the other guys they have in the minor leagues coming up. Uh, they're, they have three or four prospects, including last year, the number one pick and Trey Sweeney, who's looked pretty good so far in his young career. So they're committed to those guys. They're committed to Volpe probably at shortstop. And, you know, uh, Kiner Falefa gives them a, a chance to have a stopgap for the next couple of years until those guys are ready. So in that sense, it makes sense. The, the, the trade does make sense. And of course, Josh Donaldson is still – a very good hitter. If you look at his exit velocities last year, and I know James Smythe can get into this and, you know, I'll get, I'll, I'll look for, I'll look to land the plane here and, and hand it off to, to James Smythe, but he still hits the ball really hard, James, and his, his expected numbers last year were really good based on the quality of his contact. Right. So on the surface, you say, Hey, this is a guy that can still hit. He had an 827 OPS last year, 26 homers in 135 games. There's not quite the MVP peak, but a really good hitter. Then you go under the hood into some of the stack cast numbers. Like you said, Coney, his percentile rankings among all MLB hitters last year, he's in the top 1% in average exit velocity. He's in the top 5% in hard hit rate. He's in the top 10% in some of the expected batting numbers, expected slugging, expected weighted on base average. He's in the top 5% in barrel rate. How often do you square it up? So some of those things show that this, the skill is still there. Some injury questions. 2018 was a bit of a lost season, but 2019 played the full year. He missed one month in 2020, but because of the shortened season, that ends up taking up a, a bigger share of the games as far as games missed. And then last year, he only had a two-week stint on the IL in, in April, um, but he still played 135 games. So there's some worry about the injury factor, but I think this is definitely an upgrade at, at that part of the diamond and Coney dove into it at the uh, shortstop and, and catcher positions. It's a big shakeup for the Yanks. 
quick disclaimer before we go any further for those of people who are watching the youtube stream and you probably see me looking in every single direction for this recording um everything is you know a little bit different we have the monitor at the the top spawn house over there i'm looking at the camera over here so don't get freaked out there but guys a lot of people automatically thought once they saw that trade okay well what's next because this obviously can't be the end game for this team and i have to admit when i saw that little graphic on the airplane tv screen my first thought was okay well sean murphy is a guy that a lot of pitchers like pitching to he's on the oakland a's they're apparently getting stripped down for parts could that make sense? Could that be the next move? We actually had Matt Chapman and Matt Olson at the house on Sunday at the Top Spun house. People were kind of joking, oh, look, there are two future Yankees uh, on the property here. A lot of people are wondering, what does this move mean as far as the next move? David, do you think there is another move coming? It's quite possible. There's always a domino effect when you're when when one player finally breaks the ice, and I think that guy's probably going to be Freddie Freeman. Once he decides where he's going to be and takes a deal, then that brings all the focus to Oakland. And the Oakland A's are absolutely correct at asking for anybody's top prospect. If if Matt Olson is the headliner in the trade going back, now you start throwing in. Sean Murphy, a catcher, you start throwing in one of those pitchers, whether it's a Manaya or, or somebody else there, then you're looking at a, a major acquisition and they are, they're absolutely correct to ask for Anthony Volpe back in return to, as a start of the deal, as the centerpiece going back. And the Yankees are absolutely correct in saying no. So where does that leave you? And that is the question right now. Uh, and, and also you have Anthony Rizzo as a fallback option. If you want a left-handed first baseman, that is a great defender. So yeah, that's probably where this is going to end up, but you, you have to wonder once Freeman drops and then everybody focuses on Oakland, you know, what, what does that deal finally look like? And can the Yankees get the asking price, the acquisition cost down uh, to the point where that, where it's palatable to them and they have multiple pieces going, or is it just Matt Olson? You know, obviously a great first baseman who's only 27 years old, who's worth a lot. But the Yankees also have committed to Anthony Volpe or, or somebody that one of their young shortstops uh, to, to be the future shortstop for the Yankees. So they're going to say no. If, if, if you're asking for him, the answer is no. And, that, you know, in both cases, the ask is right. They should ask for him. And the Yankees uh, saying no, they should say no. A lot of moves were made over the weekend. Let's zero in on some of the pitching moves that we saw. Players are on the move. And of now former A, is headed to New York, Chris Bassett. And you, you may be able to dissect something from the package that the A's received from the Mets. They received two, you know, fairly decent pitching prospects in return for Chris Bassett for one year, but he joins the Mets rotation. What were your thoughts on the Bassett deal that the Mets made? And they have a uh, former friend of ours joining that rotation. Yeah, James Smythe has some great stuff on Bassett, and uh, you know, actually, it was the, the Mets gave up their number one, pro, their number one uh, a draft from from a year ago. So the, you know, everybody's saying, oh, they got Bassett for a couple of prospects. Well, prospects are worth more than ever nowadays, and a couple of really good pitching prospects, including somebody pretty high up on the list with the Mets, was given up to get him. So that shows you the value of Chris Bassett, and I know. Uh, James told us a lot of information about Chris Bassett, but he's a lot better than you think he is. I think he slides right into their number three spot. He's a great three starter. People think, oh, he's going to be the fifth starter for the Mets. No, he's the third guy right behind the two monsters they have at the top of the rotation. Exactly. So, 
and and he fits in stylistically well with those guys. Those guys are power guys, and Bassett's more of a, you know, an arts artsy crafty kind of guy out there, and mixing his pitches and his spin and four seamers, two seamers, changeups, curves, you know, every, everything from the mid seventies velocity wise to the low nineties, even in the mid nineties at times. You know, he told us that James when he pitched, he he kind of holds back, holds back in reserve a little bit, and he's he's more about the art of pitching. Yeah, a bit of an old school guy, right? And Cody, a pitcher's pitcher, 315 ERA last year. And uh, the fielding independent metrics uh, suggest that that's not a fluke. He's durable. He went 157 innings last year. And you mentioned him as a number three starter. Mets already had the, num- the best number two starter in the game with, uh, with DeGrom and Scherzer. Now they got the best number three with Bassett. Yeah, when I saw the reaction that a lot of people had with Bassett being dealt to the Mets, and then they kind of lined up the order of the rotation and they had Chris right around number four, number five, maybe behind Taiwan Walker at number five. I'm saying, guys, there's, am I wrong here? I mean, obviously very top heavy with DeGrom and Scherzer, but they're not getting younger. You factor that in with some of the recent injury history. It is not inconceivable. And obviously this is not what a Met fan wants to hear, but there's a chance that Chris Bassett could be the best starting pitcher on that staff in 2022. So his, his track record. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a valid point. His track record speaks for itself. I mean, he's had an extended run, a large sample size of, of high quality pitching. And he obviously knows what he's doing out there. His formula, his style is a really well-developed real, well suited to, to, uh, to be sustainable. So yes, uh, he's proved it. He stays healthy. He's going to continue to prove it. All right. Another one that made waves mainly because he was thought of as the best pitcher available on the open market coming out of the lockout, Carlos Rodon, two years, 44 million with the giants. What did you think? Yeah. High upside. You know, the question with him obviously is health and any starting pitcher who's had some arm issues. you, You wonder he really took a big jump, a big leap in velocity last year. All of a sudden, he's throwing in the upper 90s. And for the first half of the year, for a big chunk of the first part of the season, he looked like one of the best left-hander in the game last year. I mean, he was that dominant at times. So, yes, I mean, it's a two-year commitment. Yeah, it's uh, $22 million on an average annual value. But it's not like, you know, you, you had to go out five or six years. I think it's a pretty good – a pretty good gamble. And it, it also is a pretty reasonable number for a pitcher that has the upside that R- Rodon has, uh, you know, it's the top of the pitching scale is what Scherzer at 40 or <laughs> 35 to 40 millions, the top of the scale on an average annual basis. That's, you know, uh, Rodon's, uh, you know, half of that. So, yeah, I, I think it's a pretty good risk and his upside is tremendous because he can absolutely dominate, dominate a game. The upside play is just the thing for a team like the Giants to do. So I think it's a good pickup. A 2.37 ERA last year in only 132 and two-thirds innings, so he didn't uh, hit enough innings to qualify. But even with the, with the injury question marks, you know, some guys can go 200 innings a year. Maybe some guys can only go 120. If it's elite, elite level like Rodon was last year, you sign up and take that. Speaking of elite level, taking the ball, being durable. That leads us to this week's guest on Tone the Slab. John Lester made 30 or more starts in his career, 12 seasons in a row. 
he ranks among as one of the best left-handed pitchers of this recent generation. And the cool thing, it kind of blends in together between the period we're seeing now, right, guys, with so much information at our fingertips in the period that proceeded directly. So there's a, a bleed through, so to speak. But overall, James, last 15 years, which kind of spanned John Lester's career, he just announced his retirement in January. How do you think he stacks up regarding left-handed pitchers on the mound? Well, he's, we're going to, let's, let's push it back a little bit more than 15 years. Get the entirety of his career and a little bit earlier. We're going to go wild card era since 1995, always used as a signpost for this more modern era in baseball history. So Lester, 200 wins on the nose. He's one of six left-handers to reach the 200 win plateau. Pettit, Sabathia, Randy Johnson, Jamie Moyer, Mark Burley, and Lester. And in fact, Lester has a better ERA than three of those guys. So the only two guys that have more wins and more and a better ERA in the wildcard era, thrown from the left side, CeCe Sabathia and Randy Johnson. So elite company for John Lester, a mainstay, regular season, postseason, one of the great pitchers of the last generation. And then you take a look at the postseason numbers right in front of me here. Nine and seven record, two five one ERA in 26 postseason games at a 101 whip in the postseason. And if you want to zero it in for the World Series, 1.77 earned run average in six career games. His whip there is 0.92. And we got into a lot of different angles with John. I know I mentioned the back and forth with David, which I thought was awesome a pitching fan, but also him talking about his relationship with some of his catchers, uh, Dave Ross, Mike Borzello, who's, you know, one of the best bullpen catchers that we've seen in the last 30 years or so, uh, you know, was a bullpen catcher for the Yankees dynasty teams, the Cubs world series team in 2016. Uh, John Lester kind of going out on top, you know, he spent last year with the nationals and the Cardinals. He went out on top. I think based on the way he pitched he had a 3.40 era over his last 10 career starts but he walks away from the game uh at you know at 38 years of age and he has a sounds like a whole lot in store for his immediate future and perhaps a future down the road so uh, without further ado our guest here on towing the slide pitching with david Cohn this week is the three-time world series champion john lester john thanks so much for joining us here this week on towing the slab Really quick, as spring training camps are underway, we're recording this on Monday, March the 14th, your level of FOMO of not being at a spring training site on a scale of one to 10, what's the number? Uh, right now, it's, it's pretty low. Um, you know, I think once I start seeing guys in uniforms and, and running around and, and some games starting, I think it'll, it'll probably creep up there, but so far, so good. Um, you know, going into this whole process of, uh, I guess, the next next step of, of my life. Is there any chance of you pulling a Tom Brady here? <laughs> no, I got asked that this morning. Um, no, no chance. I mean, it's – I knew last year, uh, pretty early last year, and then, you know, about halfway through the year, just with some stuff going on, um, you know, kind of mentally, physically, I, I knew it was, it was time. Um, my kids, you know, obviously have kind of helped that decision as well. They're getting older. They're wanting to do their own thing and, and, and kind of cement their, their place at home and, and sports and all that. So no, no, no Tom Brady, uh, pull it back and, 
and, get, and try to find a team. But the, the last 10 starts that you made in 2021, you had a 3.40 ERA. Did you feel as good as the ERA looked? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I felt a lot better than where I was at earlier in the year. You know, um, you know, I got over to the Cardinals and, you know, kind of had to buy into some changes that hadn't been brought to me before. And, and, you know, that's not like a, that's not a knock on, on Hick or any other place that I was at. Uh, that, that's more a knock on myself, just not buying into the changes earlier, earlier in my career. Um, you know, he had me, Mad Dog had me move over on the rubber and then they had me use, you know, a different pitch mix and all this stuff. And, and I was at a point where I really had nothing to lose. So it was kind of like, might as well change um, and see what happens. And I, and I started, you know, other than my first, I think probably a couple starts, uh, kind of got into a groove there. Uh, you know, those last, like you said, 10 starts or so. Hey, John, thanks again for coming on. Uh, big fan of your work over the years. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been to baseball reference and you look at similarity scores, but we're pretty close actually here in my, <laughs> yeah. my career. I think I'm, I'm number, number two on the list. Dwight Gooden, number Ooh. one on the list, uh, similar to your career. Pretty good names on that list. Lackey's on that list. Okay. You know, some, some really good pitchers on that list. Kind of shows your body of work. Uh, I like to go back. I, I think we're similar in that. I always ask this question to guys at the start of their career coming out of high school, you know, what that decision was like. Cause I still remember my decision back then on whether to go to college or go to, you know, coming out of high school, I'm going to go play pro ball. What do I do? Do I take, do I take the money? Do I take the chance? And, you know, I, I just for young guys that might be in that situation that listen to this, uh, to this podcast, what, what, what was that like back then for you? The decision-making you're out of high school, you're going to take the contract. Man, for me, it was easy. I mean, I think, like you said, pro ball, like, let's go. I want to get it going. Um, you know, but that's the 18 year old kid in you trying to, you know, jumpstart everything and, and, you know, put the cart before the horse. But I, I think my parents really reined me back on that and, and made me go through the whole process and really, you know, see it from both sides. Um, you know, I was a week away from, from going to school and, and got, you know, like you said, you got that contract, you can't really turn down. Um, you know, I got life-changing money at that time for me and decided to do it. Um, you know, obviously it worked out so I can sit here and say, I'm glad I did it. But even then I was glad I did it because it really made me grow up. Um, you know, I remember calling my parents when I first got down, we were in a hotel and you're trying to figure out how to do laundry, you know? So it's like, do I, you know, do I do, can I do colors with whites? Can I do this? You know, like, and trying to figure out, you know, I got to buy sheets, I got to buy this. So, you know, just stuff like that. I mean, I think, you know, I, I was, I was very fortunate that my parents helped me with that and kind of pushed me in the right direction. I had a lot of great guys around me. Um, a lot of high school guys got drafted the same year I did. And we, we kind of came through the system together. So I think it was, you know, I hate to keep like using a cliche, but I think it was a perfect storm for me. I got put in a great situation great coaches, great guys around me. And it made kind of the transition every year a little bit easier. Um, you know, I saw other guys that, you know, I ended up playing with later in my career that struggled a little bit early on coming out of high school with that kind of that freedom um, and and not knowing what to do, how to prioritize time, um, you know, get into that routine and all that stuff. So, I think for me, it's all individual. Um, 
you know, and, and I think you have to look at, you know, do you, do you know how to, to get on a, a structured uh, routine and, and, and kind of hold yourself accountable? If you've always kind of had somebody holding your hand, it, it will become very difficult. Um, but I, I loved every aspect of the minor leagues, except for the bus rides, those, those kind of, those sucks pretty bad, but you know, just the games and the cities and, and, you know, I still tell guys stories and talk about cities that we played in and stadiums that we played in and, and, you know, bussing all over the East coast and all that stuff. So it, it was, you know, a lot of fun times, a lot of hard times, but you know, in the end, when you get there, it's, a, it's all worth it. So true. I still remember my minor league days so well. I'm playing in the South Atlantic league, Charleston Royals back in the day. And uh, every Wednesday night was 25 cent beer night. Yep. <laughs> and, and, if, and if we won the game, the owner let us stay afterwards and clean up some of the kegs that were left there over you. and hang out with the usherettes. So there you as go. A, as a 19 year old boy, that's, uh, I, I'd love to go right back there right now. You know, yep. One of those, one of those Wednesday nights and relive that experience. So you're right. That minor league days, uh, they stay with you forever. David, I can't let this slip by here. John was mentioning how he kind of had to grow up quickly, learning how to do laundry, entering pro ball. What was the moment that you had to grow up quickly starting off in the minors and it has to deal with something that's completely unrelated to baseball? Well, it, you know, he, he rung the bell for me too there. I mean, there's just, you, you don't know life experiences. You know, I, I remember I got a $17,000 signing bonus and I had to have the new uh, Z28 had to buy that car. It was, it was a mo- they changed the body style back in the Camaros that day. If you're a Camaro aficionado, the Z28 was the first body style change. I had to have it threw all my cash down, bought it. And, and uh, you know what? I, I still had a loan out on the car. So when I got to Charleston, South Carolina, I, I didn't understand about insurance and making the car payments on time. I got a couple car payments behind. And then the next thing, you know, you know, my, the IRS uh, garnishes my wages because I never paid taxes on the original signing bonus. So I got double whammied. I mean, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I got hammered, ended up in a GM dealership in Charleston, trading in my Z28 on a Buick Regal to try to make it trading, <laughs> trading down. So, yeah, it was a hard lesson on budgets, money, everything. John said, you know, sheets, you know, furniture, how to, you know, how, how to live, how to find an apartment. And, you know, I really feel for the minor league players, you know, and they made some gains. It kind of, you know, nowadays when you're talking about housing for minor league players and a living wage, yeah, that strikes home for me. And I know it probably does for John too, because we, we live that life and it, it really does stay with you forever. Hey James, over the last 15 years here with, with John Lester's career, specifically with left-handers, what jumps out at you from a statistical point of view? Well, uh, John, simply one of the best pitchers of his generation, a 16-year career that just wound down uh, this season, three World Series titles, two with the Red Sox in 2007 and 2013. Of course, the curse-breaking Cubs title in 2016, five-time All-Star, a 2008 no-hitter, so accomplished, 2016 NLCS MVP, a 251 career postseason ERA, and exactly 200 wins. Sorry, Coney. He's beat you by six, 200 to 194. And some remarkable history there too. I mean, when you think about winning a world championship with the Red Sox and the Cubs, that's pretty, you know, I mean, that, that is pretty remarkable. Can you tell us, John, I mean, you know, what that was like that first experience when you, you know, you're a world series champion, 
you know, you're obviously, uh, you know, you're with the Red Sox. You, you had an unbelievable series against the Cardinals that year in 2013. I think you gave them one earned run and a couple of games started and 15 innings pitched. I mean, you absolutely buried the Cardinals that year. You're a World Series champion. Yeah, what are you thinking at that point? Uh, well, at that point, I understood kind of how hard it was, you know, like how in, in 07, you know, I, I was coming back from from my cancer stuff and I didn't get to experience the whole grind with the team and and go through that whole thing. And then I got, you know, I was very fortunate to be on the playoff roster and, and then get a chance to pitch in, in that World Series. So you win and you're kind of like, wow, this is easy. You know, like I, I jumped in and, and I got a ring. So it's like that you don't have to worry about that stress anymore because, you know, you, you see guys that go through their whole careers and never win one. Um, but I never felt like it was mine. You know, I never felt like I, I really uh, was a part of that team. And when I when we got to 13, you know, we were coming off such a bad year as well. Uh, you know, obviously, personally, I had probably the worst year of my career, if not the worst. Um, and then we, we weren't really expected to do anything. And all these guys come in that were, were trying to fight for kind of the end of their careers, if not another job or whatever. Uh, and we got, we all meshed and we played and we went from day one to, to the end as, as the best team and uh, really, really cool. I got to experience, you know, kind of that here, here's the ball game one, here's the ball game five kind of feeling of that responsibility of going out and not only setting the tone, but then if you do get to that game five, kind of, you know, swinging that series to your, to your advantage. Um and was able to go out and do it. And that that's the other part is, is being able to go out and do it. And, and Rossi and I got on, got on a roll and that, that kind of started that whole thing. Um, you know, so it was 13 for me was, was kind of a game changer in how I felt not only as, as, as a pitcher, um, but as like how to figure out teams and, and game planning and all that other stuff was really a, 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 a turning point for me in my career. Um, you know, going forward and, and kind of really helped me kind of set up going into the Cubs, you know, kind of that whole free agency uh, ordeal. Yeah, that that brings up another question. I know, you know, you and I have a good friend, Mike Borzello, who you worked with and was bullpen catcher with the Yankees. And both of you have seen a lot of changes uh, in the game since when you, when you first broke in, you know, the way you prepared, the information that was available to you. And now when you leave, I mean, you're kind of the last of the Mohicans. You threw 130 <laughs> pitches and you're no hitter. Yeah, we're not going to see that very often anymore. Pitchers being allowed to throw that many pitches, but your impressions on the changes in the game, the preparation, you know, what you did with the Cubs, you know, uh, throughout that era and some of the information and the game planning compared to when you first broke in uh, when, when it was more limited back with the Sox. Yeah. I mean, I think we've kind of gone through like a little curve right now. I mean, I, I feel like information was still useful uh, or was useful back then. You know, you were kind of right at the beginning of, these really intense uh, uh, scouting reports, you know, kind of 05, 6, 07. That was kind of the beginning of all this stuff, the bat system and people really diving into that. And I, I remember, you know, listening to Schilling talk about it and he was kind of one of the big guys on breaking stuff down and 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 all that. And and having him and Veritech there were, were big into kind of believing into that stuff early on in my career. Um, when you don't have those guys there to help, you know, kind of translate it, it becomes very difficult as somebody that doesn't know what they're looking at. So then you start getting all this information. And then now I feel like where the game has changed is because 
guys have such good stuff. They don't care about, well, I don't care where I throw this ball. I'm going to throw it middle belt high and get above your barrel and beat you. And then when you foul one off, I'll throw you my slider. I don't care where it goes. It's just going to be nasty and you're not going to hit it. Um, you know, so we've kind of gone from one end to the other. I think right in the middle was, is, you know, you're talking about Borsi. He was so awesome. Um, a conversation to that. I mean, he had me and him had a conversation one night that changed my whole perspective on it. Uh, opening day against the Cardinals, we're going over the report and he's like, Hey man, you really have to run some sinkers in on these lefties. You know, if you just stay out over, they're going to, they're going to kill you. And I was, you know, first start over Borzi and I hadn't really talked a whole lot about anything yet. And I was kind of thinking in my head, I'm like, man, I came from the American league East. Like I'm facing Robinson Cano and Jason Giambi and, you know, all these big guys. And I'm like down and away, I'm going down and away and going cut her off that. Like, I don't, you know, that's what got me here. Let me just get through this one and we'll figure it out. Well, I didn't say that to him, but in the back of my mind, I, you know, was saying that. So we go out completely abandoned the sinker in and went heaters and four seams or four seams and cutters down and away. Didn't really work out against the lefties. So about a three or four starts in, he pulls me aside and he's like, Hey, you're going to have to change or you're not going to succeed. And we got a little, you know, a little heated, uh, which I think are sometimes the, the best conversations. Um, you know, cause he's, he's calling you out on your insecurities and uh, you have to man up to those and admit those and, and kind of go, you know, once you calm down, we came in the next day, he approached me, I approached him was like, all right, what do we got to do? What are we, what are we going to try to adapt to this? So then to go to that, you know, now we're going into scouting reports. So you have to be able to adapt to pitch the scouting reports. And, you know, we try to do that as comfortably as we can, right? Like, you know, you always had a comfortable side of the plate that you would go to when in doubt, you know, I'm sure, or a breaking ball or, you know, a changeup. Like if, if your curveball was better than your changeup, you were going to go to that as your off speed. If you didn't have, you know what I'm saying? So anyway, we had that and, you know, then we had to learn how to pitch up. So we had conversations about that. Then it became, you know, where are we going to go with the cutter? And that, that became a thing for me because I was so fastball in cutter in dominant that we had to kind of disguise it sometimes. So I had to learn how to throw a cutter up and into a righty as opposed to just kind of that down and in one, you know, so, and, and he was so count specific swing specific uh, slug specific, you know, on stuff that it really became, as you got used to it, it became easy uh, because you could sit there and go, okay, his slug is here. I'm going to try to go here. And, and, you know, you, that cat and mouse game of that and, you know, when in doubt you fall behind a guy, you know, game could be close or whatever. I'm going to go to the limited slug. And, uh, you know, it, he, at some, if you gave it to somebody that didn't know what they're looking at, it looks like, you know, the hardest thing in the world, but he really made it very difficult. He made it like a story and it was, it was awesome to work with him and, and change my game and adapt. And, uh, you know, we kind of did that together and, you know, it's pretty cool. Yeah. That is a great description of evolving and learning and adjusting to the information. And then obviously using all your pitches to both sides of the plate, that backdoor cutter to righties that you mastered in your Cubs days, it kind of came along for the ride. And I mean, you always had, you could always, it seemed like to me, 
you had a natural way to spin the ball. You always had good feel for that pitch, you know, the sliders and cutters, especially down and away or into righties. But when you started using both sides of the plate with it, it made you so much more unpredictable to me. And, and then all of a sudden it seemed like the light bulb went off on you where you could throw any pitch in any count. And you found that formula that you just described. And that takes up, takes a burden off your mind out there when you're pitching. I, I'm sure you felt that, that, you know, you, you didn't have to worry about as much about the selection process. You kind of in, innately knew where to go. And you, you mentioned the slug or the scouting reports. You, you didn't have to burden yourself. You could just worry about, you know, spotting the pitch or execution. Yeah. And that was a big thing. I mean, that was a big thing with Borzy with, with, you know, with adapting and using all of your pitches because, you know, there'd be guys where we couldn't throw cutters in, but we could throw them back door to them, you know? So it was like, we would still use the pitch. We just wouldn't use it in the spot they wanted, you know? So, and then he would, the really cool part with, with how my changeup evolved and he did the, did this with John Lackey as well. Um, is we would identify, you know, if it was one guy, if it was five guys that we could throw the changeup to that it, we're pitching a slug now, right? Like, so that wouldn't hurt you. So say they're, you know, they hit 220 off of batting average off of the changeup, but their slug is 150 or their slug is 200. So you know that no matter if they do get a hit, it's a base hit. So we're moving on, but I, at least I can show it and I can use it to where that guy now goes back to the dugout. It's like, hey, I thought you said he doesn't throw his changeup. You know, so then that goes into their minds, but then also for you gives you confidence going, okay, I, I can actually throw this. And even though I gave up a single, I'm still, you know, I'm still pitching. I'm learning, I'm adapting. And Bors, like I said, Borzi was really good at that and making you feel uncomfortable to then be comfortable. Now, were you a guy who read the bat or read body language? Like you just mentioned, you know, a guy walking back and you kind of tell right by the body language that they weren't expecting that pitch or is there certain swings you saw that keyed you in on, Something you 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 read, whether it was a span, the swing or the body language of the hitter. I was never great at reading um, guys. Um, you know, like I feel like anytime I would see guys move in the box would be you know when my leg is all the way up and I've already committed to a pitch and it's like great he's he's guessing along with me and he's one. Hopefully I can get this one in far enough or get it off far enough or whatever. But no, I was never good at at reading swings or reading body language. Um, I always liked seeing guys, especially veteran guys, when you would get them out and whether they, they hit a ground ball or a pop-up or a strikeout or whatever, and they look at the radar gun. I always loved seeing that because you fooled them on what they were looking for and, and they didn't know what, they didn't recognize what you threw. So then it's like, okay, what was the speed? I got that a lot on my changeup kind of middle, middle time in Chicago because I had just started throwing it a little bit more. So we got that on, on a few righties. I always loved seeing that, but as far as reading them, no, I was never good at that. And I think that's why Rossi and I worked so well together is, you know, he would, he would kind of figure out when in was enough and then hop away to try to look for that bad contact or that, that strikeout. John, in the moment of candor between someone like a Borzello or a Ross, is that you think, the time that, you know, sprinkled the seeds in terms of fostering such a close relationship with, with people like that for you? Yeah. I mean, I can tell you the first, first time Rossi caught me in a, in a, in a, in a big game, that's the conversation that really kind of set the tone 
for our relationship. Um, it was in Boston in 13 and he came off of his, we call it his vacation, but he had, a he had, he was coming back from concussions and, uh, you know, we were giving him a hard time because he came back all tan and he was looking good. So we were like, Oh, you're on your Hawaiian vacation for the last two months and we've been grinding, but, uh, he comes and we're playing Detroit. I'll never forget this. And he's like, man, I watched a lot of film and I feel like guys, you know, kind of just nibbled and picked and, you know, didn't really go after these guys. And you're talking, you know, Austin Jackson's leading off. Uh, I forgot who was, oh, Torrey Hunter's hitting two, Prince Fielder, Miguel Cabrera, Alex Avila's there. You know, I mean, the list goes on of their team. They were stacked. And he goes, you know, he looks at me, he doesn't even look at the report and he goes, how, how are you feeling? I said, I feel good. He goes, all right, we're going to try to go through the order with all fastballs to start the game. We're going to, we're just going to attack and I want you to throw it as hard as you can. And he goes, we'll worry about a scouting report later. I said, all right. So we did it and we got out there and we, we moved the ball around up in, you know, all over the place on these guys, you know, we took our chances with breaking. We didn't actually just throw all fastballs, but we attacked them. The point of it was we attacked them. Um, but the conversation led up to that mentality. And to your point, yeah, I mean, you sit there and you feel like you've got a good game plan with these guys, a good banter back and forth. And then when you go out and execute it, you know, and you see Borzi over there celebrating after we get a big strikeout with the pitch that, you know, was underlined on the scouting report, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty cool feeling. So many people had 13 game is, was that, uh, I'm looking at September 3rd here. You had seven innings and one run ball with no walks and nine K's and beat Max Scherzer three, two to one. Is that, is that the, is that the game you're talking about? That, that would, that would be the game. Going That's a good one. Hunter. Wow. <laughs> Told you he's a good researcher. He came up with that right now. Yeah, that's that's pretty quick. That was good. You know, I, I, I could nerd out with you and talk pitching all day long, but I don't want to gloss over. You mentioned, you know, uh, you know, you're, you're a cancer beater. I don't like Survivor. Survivor's great. But, you know, and I, I won the Hutch Award myself. That was one of the best awards I ever won, the Fred Hutchinson okay. Award. Um, you know, I'm a Hutch winner. I know you are the 08 winner. I know you, you had your treatment there. I know you're from that area. I know you now have uh, – uh, you know, you're in, into wines and your charity wines and you're still, you know, you're very involved, raising a lot of money. I want to give that, you know, a, a little bit of uh, a love because it's such, such a big part of your life. And, you know, I know, I believe the, the cure from cancer might come from that center. That's how good the Hutch yeah. center is. Fred Hutchinson center is out there. And I, maybe you can expand, expand on a little bit better than I can at this point, but what that was like going through it, what you got, the treatment you got out there and then how committed you are now to, continuing to fundraise and, and, uh, and raise money for it. Yeah. I, I mean, I was very, very lucky, um, to, to meet a lot of great people going through that process that, that really helped me, uh, obviously on the, on the cancer side, but also, also, I think the biggest thing with cancer is, is the mental side, because, you know, it's not like a cold or anything else where you can, you know, take Advil or whatever and feel better and immediately see results that, that you know, there's, there's no, visual uh results from from cancer treatments except you know being bald and losing your hair and, and feeling like crap all the time so those doctors those people uh the red sox organization my parents uh family all that stuff were instrumental in that whole thing um but to your point i mean fred hutch 
unbelievable facility. Uh, the people that work with them, uh, the doctor I had out there, un unfortunately passed away a few years ago, but was one of the leading researchers uh, for cancer treatments and all that. So I, I agree with you. I think there's going to come a time, hopefully, where this is null and void, and it's treated almost like a common cold. And and hopefully, it comes out of the uh, Great Pacific Northwest uh, from Fred Hutch. Um, but yeah, so we see 07 was 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 cleared to play, uh, was in remission. Uh, o or C wouldn't be O, it'd be, I think at the end of 11. So beginning of 12, we started, might've been 11 was my first event. So 11, we started our foundation uh, called Never Quit for pediatric cancer research. Um, you know, there's so much that goes into adult uh, cancer, whether it be, you know, the Susan G. Komen or, or the, uh, I forgot the prostate cancer one, but anyway, to, to the point of what I'm saying is we decided to go with the, the children's side and um, I mean, was, was an unbelievable decision for us. Same thing. I've got to meet a lot of great kids uh, through this whole thing, hopefully help them mentally with their, with their struggle coming to baseball games and being a part of that. Uh, the Yankees actually to give them some props were some of the best or probably the best organization we dealt with with getting kids out and to games and on the field. And, you know, obviously being a Red Sox guy, they didn't want to meet me. They met, you know, CC and, and some other guys, which he was awesome with that as well. But just, uh, you know, something that meant a lot, obviously meant a lot to me um, and my family doing that. And we were fortunate to raise, you know, good, good amount of money for that. Um, and hopefully now we can, we can maybe, you know, do something outside of the baseball or we're going to, we don't really know where our, you know, our direction is going to go with it, but hopefully continue to keep the never quit name and pediatric cancer research out there and, and continue to raise money for it. Well done. Well done, John. You're an inspiration Thank to you. a lot of people out there and the way you handled it and what you continue to do. So, uh, yeah, just, I didn't want to gloss over that. Such an important part of, uh, you know, who you are, what you've been through and then our connection as well, you know, the, the Fred Hutchison Cancer Research Institute out there in, in, uh, in the Pacific Northwest is an amazing yes. spot out, outside of, in Seattle there. So uh, uh, it's, uh, it's something I'm really proud of to say that I'm a Hutch Award winner and, and to go out there and get that tour there and see what they're doing out there. So, yeah, it's pretty yeah. cool. Hey, John, where can people get more information on Never Quit? Uh, never or NVRQT.org is our website. Um, and of course we got it all updated after, after I retired. So it's finally all updated uh, or should be at least. And um, you know, we do, we do a lot of cool things on there. We, we, you know, send baseballs. If you make a donation and there's, you know, say some, somebody's in the hospital, you make a donation under their name. Uh, we will send baseballs to them um, or little care packages, stuff like that. So it, it's a pretty cool little deal. We, we still do. Um, and like I said, hopefully we can, as the world gets back to normal, we can start, you know, getting back to normal and, and having some of these events and, and, uh, you know, kind of bring this back to, to light. I got to go one, one more place there, Shaq. I don't mean to jump on you. Um, the Cubs 2016. I mean, it, that's just huge. And you were such a big part of it. I mean, your year was great. Um, you know, the Dodgers, you stuffed them in, in the L in NLCS, you're the MVP and then Cleveland. What a, what a wild series that is. Yeah. Um, you were first in uh, win probability added that year. Here you go. Smeister. I'm going to steal a little thunder from you there. 
win probability added to five. You had a 5.0 ranking that year first, the first of all the pitchers uh, nationally. What a great year you had. What was that like? I mean, the Cubs, I mean, you, you win the world series afterwards, the, the, the parade, the, the emotion of the Cubs fans. I mean, yeah. wow. People crying in the stands that, that just had to be, had to leave an imprint on you. It was pretty cool. I mean, obviously that's an understatement. It, it, it was an unbelievable ride. And, and I actually kind of attribute everything in 16 to 15, you know, we weren't really expected to do anything. So I expected to be a 500 team and we end up finishing, you know, a, a distant third in that division when in 95 games, I think it was, or 94 games and having to play, you know, the pirates who which were, you know, obviously a, a stud in our division that year uh, in a, in a one game playoff. Um, but I, I think honestly, what, what, what really led us to 16 and being successful in 16 was beating the Cardinals in 15 in the, in the DS. Cause you could see like, guys that had been there for a few years, like Rizzo and Rondon and you know, guys at Stropy that have gotten their butts kicked by these guys, you know, for however many years they've been there. And we beat them when they were supposed to win the world series after winning 101, 102 games, whatever they won that year. So I was like, we, we did that. And then whatever happened after that, you know, I think was gravy for us. You know, we ended up getting swept by a really hot team, the Mets and I mean, from day one of spring training in 16, it's all guys talked about. It kind of reminded me a lot of a younger version of the 13 team. I mean, 13 team from day one, all guys talked about was the parade, was how good the the uh, the series was going to be, how great the season and all this stuff and how all these positive things and how all these great things we were going to do and, and whatever. And 16 was that way. It was like just a, a mentality that we had. And the cool part was, is we did it all year. Like we were the best team all year and, you know, we, we played really well in the playoffs and we, we got down to a really good team in the, in the world series and, and we're able to come back and, and take that in that game seven, which was, was a pretty crazy night. Is game seven of 2016, the greatest achievement in the career of John Lester? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think, Game seven was so crazy. I mean, I don't, I don't know, but I, I, I would like, you know, kind of that old school. I think the greatest achievement for me personally is just being able to do what I was able to do for 16 years. You know, I was, I was relied upon for 16 years to take the ball every five days. And I think that's what I, I hope I'm remembered for more than anything. It's just that, like I was able to do that and, uh, my team was able to count on me every five days to to take that ball. Love it. John, thanks so much for the time. We have one more that we kind of close our our segments with our guests each and every time here on Toe in the Slab. We give you the chance to ask a question to an upcoming guest on the podcast. So before we do that, we obviously have a question for you from a prior guest that was okay. on the show. So someone that we recently had on is right now arguably – the top prospect in all of baseball. It's Bobby Witt Jr. of the Kansas City Royals, a star shortstop looking to try and earn a spot on the uh, opening day roster here to begin 2022. So here is what Bobby Witt Jr. had for you. I would just say, like, how great is it to win a World Series? I just want to 
my dad's won one. I've heard other guys that have won them. They just said it's the best feeling ever, ever. But I just like to hear, I guess, the stories from everyone, just how great it truly is. And whenever you hear those things, it gives you more, more motivation once you want you to win your own. And so, so that, that, that'd be my question. Um, well, kind of fun fact before I answer the question is his dad was actually one of my first agents when I signed out of high school. So that's when you know it's time to go home is when <laughs> those guys' kids are playing um, almost in the big leagues. But uh, to answer the question, I mean, I think it is, you know, when, when you're able to do it, like I said, I kind of answered that early on with, with the 07 one. I wasn't able to, to be there from day one. Um, I think when you're there from day one to the end, it is one of the most gratifying, um, relieving feelings that you can have. I mean, I, I feel like the Cubs one was so relieving for me as opposed to like the Red Sox ones were just like pure excitement. Um, like you had, you're, you'd set out to do a job and you did it. Uh, the Cubs one was just like, for lack of a better term, the monkey was off my back. Like we, we did it in year two of the contract, no matter what happens here, it's, it's, it's all gravy. So, um, but yeah, I mean, there's no other, there's no other feeling really probably other than your kids being born, uh, of excitement, um, that, that I could relate it to. That's fascinating. Two different senses for ultimately achieving the same goal. albeit with different groups of players and stuff like that, but the fact that, you know, winning a World Series can produce different feelings given the year that it's taking place is, uh, is very fascinating. Well, I was I was lucky enough to to have some to compare it to. So that, that's that's the big thing. <laughs> that's I mean, true. Yeah. One, one uh, needs to, you know, be in that scenario first. Right. Very fortunate. Very fortunate yeah. for that. So I can certainly relate to the relief part. That's a great answer, by the way. Yeah, of course, you're excited. Of course, you're sharing it with your teammates. But. There is a there is a relief element to it that you didn't blow it or you didn't you know <laughs> that something didn't happen you know you didn't have a Bill Buckner moment you know the yeah. ball through your legs or something like that there is definitely a relief moment uh, involved there that's a great answer I, I think too like getting to that game seven I, I honestly think everybody was kind of waiting for that you know and then you know Chappie uh, gives up that homer and everybody's like great that's it but you know, people forget that would just tie the game. So it wasn't like we lost the game from that. So it was, you know, I think everybody, and even when Chris fielded that last ground ball, you know, he slipped a little as he's throwing it to third or to first and, you know, we're all like, and then Riz, you know, stretches and catches it. So, yeah, I mean, I think, like you said, everybody's waiting for that, you know, sorry, but that Bartman or that Buckner or whatever moment and, and thank goodness it, it didn't happen. All right, here is a chance for you to ask a question to one of our upcoming guests. And one of them is, is the top overall pick of the 2018 draft coming off a very encouraging season as a young starter in the majors and looking for a promising 2022. It is Casey Mize of the Detroit Tigers. What can you ask ah. Casey? Ooh, what would I ask him? You said, how old do you say he was? I, he's 24. Okay. I mean, my my first thing that comes to my mind is what is it like to be so young and good in the big leagues right now? I think that's with everything, how different it is from when I came up, you know, that's, that'd be interesting for me. 
I like it with all the loaded information, the stuff that we were talking about earlier, the way guys are just throwing right now a nice, simple, open-ended question. I'm sure Casey can go, uh, could go on and on there. John, yeah. this was so fun, so fascinating to just have you kind of open up about the, uh, the in and outs of specifically your pitching and watching you and David go back and forth there. That was a treat, I'm sure, for James, just like myself here, watching, watching you two guys just talking shop. So much fun. Thanks for joining us, and uh, congratulations on a, a terrific playing career. We're excited to hear what you have cooking down the road. Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. It's always fun to do these things, so thank you. You got it. Thank you, John. Congratulations on a great career. Thank you very much. David, I thought it was really fascinating what you two were talking about there on the end. Stemming from the question from Bobby Wood Jr., you're talking about the feeling of relief from winning a World Series. I think I, I think I have a good idea of which World Series you were talking about with the feeling of relief. Which one was it? You know, for me, um, there, there's several big games that I think about where there was a little bit of relief. Certainly, uh, the Mets, the Subway Series against the Mets in 2000 was was a bit of a relief. Um, yeah. But, you know, in 1996, we, we lost a devastating series in 1995 to the Mariners. Five-game series. You mentioned the wild card. The first wild card team was us, the Yankees, in 95. Um, that was a devastating loss. The next year, we lose the first two games of the World Series against the Braves. And then winning game three, that was tremendous relief uh, for me to be able to, to at least hang on in that game. You know, I, I pitched six innings. I kept us in the game. It wasn't a great game by any means. It was gutsy. Uh, but there was tremendous relief after that game that, uh, wow, we, we saved some face here. We got back into this series. We're going to make a series of this. So, you know, that we, we, I thought we were going to get swept out of the building. You know, we're going to Atlanta 1996 down Oh two. And we came back and stole that series from them. Um, we talked to Tom Glavin on this podcast and Greg Maddox, uh, uh, you know, about those sorts of sorts of sorts of games. So uh, I know, I know what, what it means to them, you know, and I, I, I joke if, if they would have had Mariano Rivera as a closer that Maddox and Glavin would have had four or five rings probably rather than with the Yankees, anybody who was a Yankee teammate should look to Mariano Rivera and say, thank you. So yeah, there was relief after 96 in game three. And we talked to John right after we, you know, we finished recording. We didn't get this in the interview, but I, you know, I want to include it. I asked him, did he, and I kind of picked it up based on the way he was talking about his relationship with his catchers and the way they were kind of relaying some tips and being candid with him. And I'm sure you have to have hard conversations and you can tell that John as a leader, he's had hard conversations with some teammates in terms of trying to make them better. And I was just curious if he had any visions of perhaps getting back on the field in a coaching capacity or something down the line. And yeah, he didn't rule it out. No way. I did. The first year is always the toughest. You know, every player thinks, okay, I had a long career. I'm okay. I know I felt this, you know, I'm reasonably well adjusted. I've got other things I can do, other interests. And then all of a sudden the first spring training comes or sometime in April or May, seven o'clock rolls around on your clock and you're like, I'm supposed to be somewhere. And it, it hits you a little harder than you think. You're so used to that structure. You're so used to that routine. You're so used to the camaraderie of being around your teammates, the competition part that it, you know, no matter how well adjusted you think you are, it's going to be, it's going to hit you somewhere, somehow there's going to be a trigger and it's going to, and you're going to feel this emptiness in your stomach. And, and that, that's, that's hard for any, any athlete anywhere to deal with once your career is over. It was so hard for Tom Brady that he chose to go back. 
Yes, that was the other piece of that was the other piece of news <laughs> that I found out uh, coming off a, a plane last night, uh, a five-hour flight. The Yankee trade with the Twins and Tom Brady returning after less than two months of, uh, of retirement. All right, guys, this week in pitching history, James, what do you have? All right, March nineteenth, nineteen eighty-eight. Clayton Kershaw is born. Yes, so Saturday will be his thirty-fourth birthday. He just re-signed with the Dodgers for his fifteenth season. Three-time Cy Young, 2014 NL MVP, NL Triple Crown, pitching Triple Crown in 2011, five ERA titles, an eight-time All-Star, a gold glove, a World Series ring in 2020, seven straight seasons in the top five of the Cy Young voting. One of the greatest pitchers of all time. We'll jump in with ERA plus or adjusted ERA, as you might have heard. That's ERA as a percentage of the league average, where 100 is set as the average. Kershaw's career ERA plus is 155, meaning that he's 55% better than the league average during his career. That's the best mark by any MLB pitcher with at least 2,000 innings of work in their careers. Kershaw, one of the best ever, and he will be celebrating a birthday this weekend. Celebrating it pretty well coming off a, a, a signing. And, you know, he, he's another guy who inked a contract over this past weekend. Going back to the Dodgers, he goes with the uh, the legacy and still continuing the chance to finish his entire career, spend his entire career, I should say, with one team. Back to the Dodgers with that uh, one-year deal for $17 million. Yeah, Andrew Friedman uh, said that was the first call he made when when the lockout ended. Uh, you know, first phone call you're going to make, Clayton Kershaw. We, we, we want you back, you know, even on a one-year deal. And you're – you're right, James. I mean, he's right up there uh, in the argument of best pitchers in the history of the game, especially left-handers and stylistically too. I mean, the style, his delivery, just an iconic delivery like no other, very unique in that rainbow curveball just rains out of the sky. I mean, he's the, he's uh, he's got the numbers. He's got the style too, to go with it. Very charismatic, very stylistic pitcher as well. A fun one to watch. Hopefully one of those, you know, maybe reach for the stars guests that we can have uh, in the short-term future here on Toe in the Slab. All right, guys, three up, three down. We mentioned it in our bonus episode after the CBA was ratified. We were going to come back here with this episode this week, and I think it'd be cool if each of us maybe took one smaller detail of the CBA that is, you know, it's change or a new feature that doesn't have to deal with the core economics, has to deal with the game itself whether it is you know potential rule changes that are on the horizon or just different structures um james i started off with you what was something that caught your eye i'm intrigued by the limit on player options to the minor leagues so it used to be that you can shuttle a guy up and down between the big leagues and the minors however many times you want in a season now it's going to be a limit of five so that's a big change Lewis Head of the Rays was shuttled back and forth 12 times between the big leagues and the minors last year. Albert Abreu of the Yankees 11 times. This will cut down on that. And the thing that's interesting to me is, yes, it's obviously important for the quality of life stuff with the players. It'll make their lives less chaotic, the constant shuttling up and down. But I think this can have a bit of a downstream effect too. You're limiting the revolving door in the bullpens and You're going to have shorter bullpens, maybe less maximum velocity at all times that these guys are going to be pumping in. 
which could lead to more balls in play, longer outings from the starting pitchers, things that there's been a lot of talk in the game that there needs to be more of. Some of these other consequences from this one rule change, I think, could have a big impact. That kind of another form of service time manipulation as well. Some of these guys, you lose service time. You, you throw four shutout innings, you get shuttled out back to AAA, and you lose that service time as well. So I agree. That's something to watch. Um, you know, for me, there's a lot of talk now after this was done that there's going to be a true partnership now. Rob Manfred, the commissioner, came out and said, you know what, I really want to you – know, I've kind of failed in developing this re closer relationship with the players. You know, I need to do a better job of it. The players have always craved that uh, to have a seat at the table in some of the decision-making in the game itself. Um, this new committee that's formed, there'll be four active players that'll be on this sort of um, not necessarily a search committee, but a committee that's supposed to have some teeth that will discuss everything, including rules, uh, anything to do with growing the game. There's going to be a true partnership where players actually will have a seat at the table and we'll see how that works out. I'm very curious as to how that works out. That's something we asked for back in the 90s about, you know, hey, you don't respect our opinion. Uh, this is my life. I love this game. We have some good ideas. We want to help grow the game. We care about this game. It's, we're, we're not just greedy ball players that are worried about how much money we make or individual stats. We love this game. We want to help. And uh, we'll see. We'll see if, the, if this does, you know, have some legs to it, so to speak, and whether the players can have some real say in the future of this game and how to grow this game. And that includes everything from rules changes to, uh, you know, the, the compensation system as well and in and of itself. Yeah. I'm really curious to see what, you know, the, the makeup of that committee, did, David, did you get wind of when that committee will be formed in the near future? I I don't know the exact dates on when it will be formed other than it is definitely committed to and that there will be four active players, not one, four, four active players on that committee, along with an umpire, uh, you know, along with some, some obvious management people on that, on the other side, but that they will, you know, be able to meet regularly and discuss these issues. Uh, and it's a lot easier to do these sorts of things when there's labor peace, so to speak. So we've got five years to do it between now and then and we'll, we'll see how much progress they can make and obviously the commissioner uh, has 45 days notice now to make any changes he wants so if you're looking down the road when these changes will be made not right away but the bigger bases the pitch clock um, you know some of the other rules that are going to be into place robo umps are coming you can believe it robo umps are going to be part of this at, at some point in the near future you know for me i was Pretty surprised and kind of disappointed that if the situation calls for it, we're not going to have a game 163 tiebreaker anymore. And I, and I, I guess I can understand a little bit why they, they don't want to have that big cluster of chaos, so to speak, going from the regular season to the postseason. But instead, going forward, the winner take all will, I guess, be decided by statistics. So they're going to have statistical tiebreakers. And we haven't gotten any clarity of as to exactly why, but I think it is to prevent that chaos. It's the chaos that all of us who don't have to, you know, plan out the logistics probably crave. But uh, I think that, you know, it's something that you lose because from everything we hear, isn't everyone amped up when you get a winner take all game at the end of the regular season? Oh, you know, that, that's essentially what the, the wild card game has been. So I was, I was pretty surprised to see that. And then I think about the best 
tie-breaking games that we've seen. Obviously, 1951, the shot heard around the world is going to be at the top for all eternity with with Bobby Thompson and, and his home run with the Giants and the Dodgers. But I know we mentioned it on a couple of recent episodes, the, the Mets and Reds with Al Leiter's complete game performance. Terrific job there. 2007 with the Rockies winning the tie-breaking game, going all the way to the World Series. I think the Dodgers a few years ago, they won the tie, you know, the, the tie-breaking game. They advanced to the World Series. They end up losing, but there's a, a lot to be said from these Game 163 tiebreakers that we're not going to have any longer, and they're kind of going to be decided. If you're an NFL fan, very familiar to how they determine division winners if the situation calls for it, we're going to have a lot of statistics tell us who's going to be advancing and who possibly will be going home. Yeah, I think James probably has some some good opinions on this as well. But obviously, when you go to 12 teams in the postseason, you're taking up more time. Yeah. And it is the, the boys of October. Not Even though Derek Jeter hit a big home run in November one year, they don't want you know, baseball games in November. So that's that's the problem here is just running out, running out of time in the month of October to, to fit all of these scenarios in, in play, especially when you're expanding postseason to 12 teams now. It's a bummer and it's a casualty of the expanded postseason, which is getting priority. And uh, Shaq, you mentioned some of the great uh, tiebreaker moments. You got Bucky Dent, 78, Yankees, yeah. Red Sox, Bobby Thompson, like you said. More recently, the uh, the classic Twins-Tigers uh, matchup in 2009, that was uh, a walk-off as well. So um, something, some, a little something that's lost as we, as we move forward in, in baseball now. Yeah, hopefully the uh, the memories of a, a new playoff format will just create better, awesome moments as we go forward here. Uh, guys, thanks for uh, thanks for bearing with me here as we kind of weave through the uh, technological challenges at the Topps Bunhouse here in Arizona. I uh, want to give a big thanks to John Lester for joining us here on this week's episode and a big thanks to our producer, Dan Rourke, always doing a great job behind the scenes. Make sure that you stick with all the John Boy Media socials throughout the end of our trip here out in Arizona. A lot of great stuff as the entire crew has kind of uh, come together. You never know who's going to be rolling by the house, so make sure you keep an eye on that. Tone of the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn is a production of John Boy Media. Take care, everybody. Have a good one.